So please let yourself come back in and get settled in a comfortable or easy way. When one speaks about the spiritual path, there's two dimensions to attend to, both that which is universal and timeless and, in a sense, a kind of formal dharma, the, the teachings that would say, all things are impermanent, they all change. Whatever arises is also subject to passing away. Um, or the teachings that say that on this earth there is night and day and joy and sorrow and sweet and sour and that the experience of this life is made up of these opposites that change. So there's some universal teachings that describe experience and then talk about how to live with them in a wise way. For example, accepting the fact that things change um, can be more helpful than um, pretending that they don't. <laughs> In addition to the universal and formal teachings, there's always also a kind of personal dimension when somebody speaks, this is my experience or what I have seen or been touched by or the grace that's been given in this life. And one of the teachers that I studied with in the forests of Thailand in the south um, was this master Buddhadasa, who was adamantly against uh, making a big guru um, cult, even though he was enormously um, well-respected and famous in that part of the world. You'd come and he didn't want you to bow. He wanted you to sit down next to him like you were his buddy and have a conversation. He'd say, so what are you doing these days in your heart with this life you've been given? This is what I found that works. How about for you um, as a spiritual friend? And there's a, a beautiful text in the Christian mystical tradition, one of the, one of the most... Um, wonderful explications of contemplative life called The Cloud of Unknowing. Um, doesn't have an author, it's from the 14th century. Um, an author by the name that we know, but by some anonymous monk or nun. But it has this flavor of the kind of personal um, counseling. For example, each little one-page chapter um, a helpful instruction on the avoidance of the snares that in com contemplation one should rely more on joyful enthusiasm than sheer brute force. And then he explains his experience of how those two operate. And you start to get a sense not only that there are some universal truths, but also how they're lived in this human life. Now, Kusun Lingpa, this... Tibetan meditation master and lama who was here last week is also a healer. He does a lot of hands-on healing and works with Tibetan medicine and does blessings and teachings. And he came with tremendous enthusiasm to be here. He likes this place and a lot of goodwill. And I took him around to the new buildings. I asked him, it was raining, do you need an umbrella? He said, no, no, I have this hat. You could see his <laughs> kind of thing that was like a big, um, he said, sort of his Tibetan umbrella. But anyway... <laughs> 
And then he said, yes, you need a great big statue over here of Buddha, and you need a big statue of Manjusri there, and a huge statue of Tara there, and one of Kuan Yin. I said, by the time he was done, I said, this is going to be a Tibetan center. You know, why you just stay and take it over? And he kind of laughed. And I asked him if he knew anything about the tradition of the elders, the Theravada, from which the practices of mindfulness and compassion that we do here come from. And he said, oh, I've studied all the Buddhist schools. In my valley in Tibet, we study every form of Buddhism, and I studied all the non-Buddhist schools as well. Um, and we understand all those things, because I was wanting to maybe let him know some of the things that, that we teach here. He said, oh, we've studied all of those things. Um, and they have in their own way. Um, and I said, well, have you ever actually met a teacher from the Theravada tradition? He said, no, no, but I've studied it all. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I realized that I was talking to somebody who really lived in a different world in that moment in the conversation, which was just sort of what I figured out anyway. He really just got off the back of some yak that took him over some 20,000-foot pass to come to the West. It's true. And he grew up in a very different culture where what they taught in the monastery was about the whole world as it has been taught for a thousand or two thousand years in their form. Um, and uh, he said that when he was a younger monk, he was recognized as a tulku, a reincarnated lama from previous lifetimes. And he had this powerful vision that if only he could build the hugest stupa in Tibet with those big eyes, you know, those wonderful stupas that, that look down and smile on you like this giant Buddha. If he could build that stupa in his town of, what is it? I think it's Golok, wherever it is, that then the whole world would have peace for the next 60 or 100 years. And so he began to devote his life to building this huge stupa um, because that would change the entire state of the world. Um, and then he said, it's, it's happening, it's getting built, and it should be done in a few years, and then I'll die. And I said, oh, why will you die? He said, well, because my work will be done. Um, and I realized in the conversation it wasn't unfamiliar to me that I was speaking to someone who lived really in a different world than we do. I mean, you don't have your schedule books and you put, you know, okay, completion of task, now die in it. It's not in our kind of <laughs> cultural, you know, vocabulary. Um, he lives in the old world, in a world of, that is timeless and that is really a kind of archetypal reality. And it's quite fantastic. Um, and the style was very familiar. If I go back to Laos, as I did last year, or to Upper Burma and places like that, you find very formal teachers who studied and have a, really a good heart, and they simply transmit, this is what I have seen and what I have learned, and this is the reality of it. And sometimes it is terribly inspiring. Sometimes it's boring. I mean, I have sat through more boring Dharma talks for long periods with teachers in Asia doing the same talk over and over and over again. You know, it's timeless, all right. I mean, it has no end. Sometimes it's very formal, and the monks in Burma or Thailand will sit and they'll put a fan, a big fan, in front of their face and then talk so you don't know who's speaking behind the fan. You're just hearing the voice of the Dharma. I remember when Ajahn Sumedho, my very dear American friend who's now the abbot 
of a great number of monasteries worldwide, um, was first teaching um, at our forest monastery with Ajahn Chah. He and I were there together. And Ajahn Chah said, go give a Dharma talk. So he did, and he finished it. It was 45 minutes or an hour, you know, kind of. And Ajahn Chah said, no, no, they want to hear more. And Sumedha said, well, I've actually given all I have to say. He said, that's fine, you keep talking. And he made him talk another hour. He said, you speak another hour, we'll listen, whatever. And then another hour's up, okay, I've really completed, thank you to the monks and the people there. Ajahn Chah said, no, no, tell them more, you have a lot of Dharma to teach him. Four hours he made him talk. It was so boring. <laughs> and that was the purpose of it. The purpose of it was just to find that place where, as the listener, you could just sit and be present. And it wasn't some particular thing. It was the present, the reality of this present moment. And for the speaker or the teacher, it was to learn to not be afraid of being really boring, so that then you didn't have to get up there and be nervous about what you were going to say. You'd already done the worst thing. <laughs> what I also appreciated with Kusun Lingpa coming was um, in his style, because he would speak for 15 minutes in Tibetan and everyone was sitting here not knowing a word he was saying and meditating or being, you know, impatient or whatever you chose to do inside. Um, but he was doing that um, and then it would get translated and then he'd go on again for 15 more minutes. Um, was just how many different languages and flavors, personalities and styles, the same fundamental truths can be spoken. And sometimes they're very plain, and sometimes they're ascetic and kind of disciplined, and sometimes they're very open and kind of exciting, and sometimes they're very relaxed and, and gentle. Sometimes they're quite immediate and shocking. Um, and that it's beautiful that there are all these different expressions, that there's not just one. Um, again, in the cloud of unknowing, where he says, um, um, this chapter will explain that some people experience the perfection of contemplation in rare moments of ecstasy called ravishing. Sounds good. While others experience it as they will amidst their ordinary daily routine. And he just gives the flavor of contemplative life. And that anyone disposed toward contemplation, toward la vie intérieure, the, the life of the heart, the inner life, will recognize something akin to these voices in their own spirit when they hear these words. So there are all these different flavors. And one of the things in this particular community at Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation community is that, that we value that difference and try to have retreats taught by a number of different teachers. And we're all still students as well. We all still take ourselves to retreats and various other teachers and try to continue to learn so there isn't this sense of enlightened retirement, okay, you know, you're there and kind of collect your IRA or whatever it is. <laughs> now to go on more, more particularly about some of the teachings that Kusum Lingpa gave. The two most central principles in our practice here and in all of Buddhist practice are, as I spoke of, the principles of um, awareness and the freedom it brings, which is sometimes called emptiness, and the principle of loving compassion. 
The central principle of emptiness or openness is the reality that this life we live is a dance that changes every day, that is not in our control, that appears out of nowhere. Our thoughts come, where do they come from? Has anybody figured out where your thoughts come from? Let me know. God, I could turn off the valve, right? But we don't. They just appear. And they tell us things, and they have thousands of pictures and stories, and then those ones are gone, and new ones appear. And they do seem to be a little bit related to us, but <laughs> not completely. And our emotions are the same. I mean, they are like the weather. El Nino this winter, you know, inside. And we begin to realize that it is a dance of feelings and thoughts and perceptions of the world and our breath, which comes in and out and sounds it, that there really isn't an inside and an outside. There's this play of experiences of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and thinking um, that we imagine to be ourself somehow solid. But the more deeply we pay attention, the more we realize it's just this dance. And mindfulness or awareness is the gateway into this reality of selflessness, that there's not one separate self, but that all of us um, exist in a whole together. And this isn't a philosophy. This is a direct, immediate experience when we pay attention. Mindfulness works as a gateway like this. Um, I think of Ra Ramdas when I, when I um, trying to explain mindfulness in this fashion, because I can hear his voice saying, um, really got caught in that one, didn't you? Or um, gotcha that time, you know, in conversation with him or something where somebody gets caught up in something. And then there's that moment where he describes, because he used to go and make a fool out of himself regularly and then make his living by publicly, uh, you know, telling the entire story, you know, with a great deal of humor and with a moment of consciousness at the end. And there I was with egg on my beard again, he would say. Um, and it's that moment where we say, wow, we were really into it, weren't we? We were really angry or upset or needed that or frustrated or, or whatever it was. And then in an instant we realize, oh, that was quite a state that we got ourselves into. <laughs> Do you understand? And then it's gone. Where is it? It's like that. So it's the movement from the small sense of self to the reality of selflessness, that we don't possess our thoughts or our feelings, that they have a logic or a pattern to them, um, but that they're not ours. In fact, nothing is. Our children aren't either. Try and possess them. See if they like it. <laughs> and if you can't understand selflessness, Buddha Dasa would say, or non-self, he said, in America, maybe you can't teach non-self. He said, start with non-selfishness. Maybe people will get that. That the more selfish we are, the more self-centered in that sense, um, the more suffering there is in the end, and the less real our life is. So there's a kind of direct experience of the changing ungraspability of life that's called emptiness or selflessness because it's not possessed. There's this big picture in the Thursday's paper, in Marin paper, of Ramdas in a uh, um, pool doing his physical therapy and an article about his kind of recovery 
from his stroke, his slow recovery, and, and he's talking to the reporter who interviewed him, and he's, she said, he's laughing. He said, I used to love to surf, and now I take a therapeutic dip in the rehab pool. You know, <laughs> this is what it's come to. And he's laughing about it. And then he points to his golf clubs and the sports car. He said, the golf clubs and the sports car, all that stuff, that belongs to this other guy. You know, I don't know who he is anymore. He's not around. That was a whole different reality. And you might say, well, that's Ramdas because he had a major stroke. But it's really human experience. That's one side, the side that we possess nothing, that um, we are this process of change. And the other principle is of loving compassion. That in fact, we cannot find a freedom in this world of change without a compassionate heart. Otherwise, we fight against, we resist, we cling, we're stuck in things. When Ajahn Jamnian, the Thai teacher who comes in the in May, the last number of years, comes in, he wakes up in the morning from breakfast, he's kind of an enthusiastic fellow. And he wanders around and he has his mantra, he only knows about three words in English. He says, empty, empty, happy, happy, empty, empty, happy, happy. That's his kind of mantra. And he goes around. And he rests in what could be described as the great heart of a Buddha that meets each moment's experience with kindness, with compassion. May I serve you? May I be of use to you too? There's really this sense in this openness or emptiness of joy and happiness as well. Now in Kusan Lingpa's map, he talked about the development of practice in Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Um, and the way he talks about it um, um, traditionally tends to relate to Buddhist history, as if Buddhism developed from the smaller or lesser vehicle school to the greater vehicle, and then finally to the diamond vehicle in a kind of historic way. And then there are the lesser Buddhists and the medium Buddhists and the really cool, you know, high <laughs> Buddhists or something like that. And that's how sometimes you, it's talked about in Asia. Um, but to understand these three vehicles is to realize that they're actually stages in the growth of each individual's uh, heart and in, in our own process of awakening. So let me speak about each of them a bit. The Hinayana, which is called the lesser or smaller vehicle, and sometimes mistakenly associated with Theravada Buddhism or the tradition of the elders, even though that's not true. Um, this refers to that dimension of spiritual life, the first period, whose focus is simplicity, renunciation, stillness, discipline, virtue, non-harming, really taking care with our speech and our actions, and in which we establish a ground of stillness, of steadiness, of presence and openness, quieting the mind, training the heart, connecting with the body, learning to not cause harm in the world. And this is the description of the first vehicle, and it really has to do with a kind of cleaning up of our own act, so that we're not all over the place and lost and saying things and acting in ways that 
that we're not conscious of or that cause disharmony or, or pain to ourselves and others. And this is really the Hinayana or the, the small vehicle stage of practice and a terribly important one. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi in San Francisco said that even in the practice of the greater vehicle he was teaching, what we really do is the, is the Hinayana practice. We do the same practice, but we do it with a, with a great heart, with a Mahayana spirit. So this is the ground of everyone's practice, of learning to renunciation, which means not to be clinging to things as if they were going to make the heart happy, because it's not things. Learning the joy of letting go of simplicity, the care with words and action, the attention to our body and mind. And as we do practice in this dimension, as we steady ourselves, quiet ourselves, simplify our life a little bit, really begin to live the values of the heart, then what Chogyam Trumpa, the Tibetan Lama, called our neurotic separation and fear starts to lessen and fall away. There's a story from the Hasidic rabbi, a master, who was teaching about the special prayers that one needs to say um, just as it turns light after certain holy days. And the students with this Hasidic master said, how can we tell when daylight has come and it's time to say these final prayers? And he just looked back at them and one student said, is it when you can... um, see the lines in your hand when they appear outside? Is that when, when it's light? And he shook his head. And then someone said, well, then when you can read the words in the prayer book without using a candle, is that when it's finally light? And the rabbi shook his head. And they said, Master, tell us. And he said, the light has come when you can see another person far or near and recognize that they are your own brother or sister. That's what it means for the light really to come. And so what happens when we start to quiet ourselves through simplicity, mindfulness and attention, through a discipline of not harming and quieting the mind and opening the heart, is that at some point there comes a kind of shift In that stillness, we recognize that we're not alone in this game, that we share this human form with all these others, that we share this earth with all these other creatures. And in an immediate and natural way, once we begin to clear the cobwebs and the complexity out of our own lives, the connectedness and the compassion for all others appears of its own. And that's the natural opening of what's called the Mahayana. Maha means great vehicle. Or it's like the little ferry in the big ferry boat or something like that, all these languages. And the realization of the Mahayana stage of practice is that we cannot do it alone because we don't even exist alone. Our, our lives are dependent on insects. Without insects, you would be dead as a doornail almost immediately. The ants, the bees, 
the earthworms that aerate the soil, that pollinate the food and keep the whole food chain that you think you're at the top of going and so forth. Um, we are interdependent with the trees that we breathe with and with the bees and the ants and the earthworms. And without them, we would have no existence. So there comes in this stillness a recognition that if we are to awaken, it's we who awaken in the greater sense, the capital W. And this is the movement of the great vehicle. In this, and it's sometimes associated then with Zen and Chinese Chan and these other schools, but again, that's wrong. They're, they're just another culture's tradition, but it's in every tradition. In this greater vehicle, we have learned to step out of the body of fear and the contraction that race and class and religion and species, you know, engender all these things that we identify with and then create racism or classes or sexism or, or nationalism or all these things as if that's who we were. There's a stepping out of that small sense of self and recognizing that we are simply alive with all of life and that we share the pain that is the pain of all beings and the joy that's the joy of all beings. And there comes in this practice then a deeper and deeper notion that for us to awaken, it's all beings together. And in the Mahayana expression of practice, one often takes bodhisattva vows, which are the vows that say, sentient beings are numberless, boundless are all beings. I vow to awaken them all. And that's a pretty um, vast vision of awakening. It's not just my own, but we are all together in awakening. It's actually a timeless vision because you can't go around saving one after another. It has to be some bigger consciousness than that. A young man once asked God how long a million years was to him. God replied, a million years to me is just like a single second in your time. Then the young man asked God uh, what a million dollars was to him. And God smiled and replied, a million dollars to me is just like a single penny to you. And the young man waited for a while and kind of worked up his courage and finally asked, God, could I have one of your pennies? <laughs> to which God gently replied, certainly, just wait a second. <laughs> And what happens in the Mahayana path is that instead of figuring out how we're going to make our lives better and calmer and more patient and so forth, we begin to step even more fully into the sense of timelessness. That it's not one moment or one thing after another, but it's now and now and now. That there isn't a hurry, that it's rather returning back to this eternal present. And then the path of compassion is, as we rest here, that each action, each intention, is that which brings awakening to ourselves and to that which we touch. Now, an image for these three vehicles, and I know I've only talked about two so far, but let me give an image, and then we'll go on to the third. Um, 
and the way that problems are approached in these three vehicles. The traditional images of the poison tree. There is a tree that has beautiful fruit on it, but it's terribly poisonous. And so in the first strategy, when the realm of practice is more um, trying to avoid pain and difficulty and things that would cause harm to others, a kind of the place of discipline and um, renunciation, the strategy we would see, there's this poison tree and it could harm many beings. What we have to do is go cut it down so that no one will eat its fruit and be harmed. Now, when evolution of our practice shifts from it just being mine, this smaller sense of practice, to the Mahayana, to the great vehicle, to the great heart of compassion, then even the tree has a life to be respected. And so the strategy with the tree then is, this is a poison tree, we don't want anyone to be harmed, but it's one of us too. And so let's build a big fence around it so that no one with signs, you know, poison fruit do not eat, right, a little slash through it, so that no one um, will be harmed by it, but we don't harm the tree. Now the third strategy is the person who comes along and sees this tree with its ripe red poison fruit and says, oh, just the tree I've been looking for. These are the fruits that if they're mixed with a few other special um, ingredients will make the medicine to heal the ills of the world. Not only is it something to, you know, not to cut down or to save, but let's turn the suffering and the pain that these could cause into something of value. And so the third of these stages of evolution, which is sometimes called Vajrayana, um, which means the diamond vehicle or the thunderbolt vehicle, and some ways it's associated with Tibetan Buddhism or Shingon Buddhism in Japan, but really, again, each of these countries has all three vehicles in its teachings. Um, this is the phase of practice which celebrates even difficulties, where compassion has grown so great and the understanding of the heart and mind is such that that which is difficult becomes the playground for us to say, this too is part of life, let's make something of value. If there's pain in this way, let's use it to awaken compassion. If there's loss in this way, let's use it to awaken a true freedom and renunciation and a, and a letting go that enlightens that person. And some of the practices in that one often begins with visualizations. One visualizes the Buddha, Bodhisattva, or the Guru, and you this Lama, and you feel the, the, the playfulness of this, that they can dance in the middle of the flames, like the flames that are around this image here, where she sits with a thousand arms of compassion, dancing in the fire and reaching a hand out to every being um, that has any need for a caring heart. And some of the practices in that one often begins with visualizations. One visualizes the Buddha, Bodhisattva, or the Guru, and you this Lama, and you feel the, the, the playfulness of this, that they can dance in the middle of the flames, like the flames that are around this image here, where she sits with a thousand arms of compassion, dancing in the fire and reaching a hand out to every being um, that has any need for a caring heart. 
So you imagine this teacher or Buddha or Lama that you're with dancing in the flames fearlessly where the difficulties become their jewelry, their adornment. And you take that visualization into yourself until you feel you can do the same thing. And you get that taste of it. And then the practices over time are ways to learn to really rest in that reality and manifest it. And one of the favorite sages or Buddhas of that that express this level of practice is a Buddha or Bodhisattva called Vimlakirti who didn't even want to be a monk. He said, people will best be served if I do it in the middle of a household life. He had a family and many children. And he made himself go into difficulties so he could demonstrate how you could turn the difficulties into awakening. He made himself sick so that he was put in a hospital or this medical clinic so that he could teach the doctors and nurses the Dharma. Right? And then he, then he went as a bartender so that he could teach in the bar, you know, the, the holy dharma to all those who came for some other kind of spirits, and so forth. And this is kind of the image of going into the difficulties and saying, in this very difficulty is the possibility of freedom. In fact, it's an expression of freedom if we approach it correctly. This too. And the spirit in meditation, then, is to not be in conflict with or even try to quiet anything down, to let the dance dance itself and be spacious around it. So one Mahamudra or uh, Vajrayana text, um, which talks about the development of meditation, one quiets one's breath, one sits as still as a stone. One hears the sounds of the streams. The breath becomes like the, like the gentle murmuring of a river. And then your mind becomes so still, says you, you make your mind as if it were um, an elephant being pricked by a pin. Things come and they go and they don't, don't move the elephant. And then the stage after that is the mind becomes as innocent and still as if you were a child look at, looking at murals painted on the temple wall. You see the world with this tremendous purity and innocence. And out of that innocence, you begin to see in your meditation that there is nothing here at all, that what is seen and the one who sees are both the same, arising and passing in each moment. We cannot grasp true nature. It is only to be seen directly inside. And now you've learned how to leave every thought and passion entirely alone, not cutting it off or resisting it, and yet not falling under its spell. And from this, there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize the essence and freedom of their own minds. And you will spend your lifetimes working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist. So it's those two levels, that paradox. So I ask Kusum Lingpa, do you teach that level of practice to your students right away, this kind of Dzogchen Mahamudra, just to rest in natural ease, come to Spirit Rock and hang out, you know, let things rise and pass? He said, no, no, first we do the refuges and turn the intention of the heart toward the truth, and then we do some years of compassion practice and purification of motivation. 
And one of the key practices we do is this Tonglen practice he taught last week of giving and taking or sending and receiving, which is a very powerful form of compassion. Um, But it's also a bit shocking for those of you who are here, especially after us in the West, and you know, here we are in Marin doing healing and cleansing and filling ourselves with light. And in this practice, you take into yourself all, with each breath, you breathe in the sufferings of the world. I mean, that's bizarre. <laughs> Let me see if I can explain Tonglen a bit. I don't even know if I'll get to questions, but well, we'll keep going. And it might be boring, but that's how it goes. The fundamental practices of compassion and loving-kindness that we have taught here many times and are at the kind of base of all this Buddhist development, they deepen and deepen. We start in the simplest way of bringing a loving attention and loving phrases and images to oneself or to a benefactor over and over. Um, And by repeating them a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand times, there's this deepening intention of the heart, may I truly be well, or may this benefactor, this person who's cared for me, may they be well, may they be safe from inner and outer danger, may may they have well-being and health of body and spirit and mind. It's like you bless them over and over until it becomes the way of meeting oneself or a benefactor. Don't move, but close your eyes just as you're sitting. And think for a moment of a benefactor, someone who's really seen you and loved you, even for a moment, or cared for you. And picture this one benefactor, one among perhaps several you've had, and a few moments of the heart's intention of blessing. May you be well. May you be free from inner and outer danger, safe. And may you have health and well-being of body, heart, and mind. And may you be peaceful, filled with loving-kindness. And let that image go and come back. And you can feel how gradually repeating that with a loved one, with benefactors, with oneself over and over starts to open the heart. And you do that many, many, many times until that you learn the art of loving kindness, what it feels like inside. And then you do neutral people. And finally you move to do your enemies. And what happens when you do difficult people or enemies, after you've done benefactors and loved ones for so long, your heart's just in this loving, open place, and you think of that person that did terrible things to you, and your heart shrinks you know, and shrivels up to this tiny, hard knot. And it's so painful that you realize, damn it, i got to love them too. And it's not for their sake, but really for our own, because it's too much pain and difficulty to keep hating them. And so you let go. And the same, the compassion practice. One again, picture someone you love. Take this, you don't even have to close your eyes, but you could if you like. Picture someone you love a lot. Hold them in your heart and your mind for just a moment. And then, as you see them, 
feel the measure of sorrows they've been given. Think of this one person you love a lot, the, the burden of sorrows that they've been given to carry, their struggles, and how your heart goes out to them. And that's the first image of compassion practice, and you do it over and over for those you love and yourself, and finally gradually extend it to neutral people, and then all women and all men and all young and all old and all those far and near and finally all beings. This ability to feel compassion is that which awakens the heart. And there is in one of the early Buddhist stories a scene of the Buddhists seated under the trees with some monks telling the story of a of the nobility of this great elephant that was captured in the forest to become the head of the king's herd of elephants. But this great and regal um, king of the elephants that had been captured was living in the forest, and in his herd was his old mother who was blind. So this elephant was collecting food from the trees and bringing it to his old elephant mother. And then he was captured and brought to the king to be trained and covered with a royal golden palaquin and all these wonderful golds and silks and given the finest food. And this elephant would not eat a morsel of food because all he could do would be to stand there and mourn for his mother that he couldn't care for. The Buddha told this whole long story. And by the end, everyone was sitting there and as it said... His listeners shed copious floods of tears and by reason of the softness of their hearts became fully attentive. And then did the Blessed One, knowing full well what would be of advantage to them in this state, proclaim the truth of the Dharma and teach them so that they were all awakened. And so it was the softening of the heart of compassion that then led people to see that the only way to live is to love one another. And that the only thing that matters is not what we get, but how much we can give. So Tong Len, this practice that Kusun Lingpa taught, is a more demanding version of that, a much more demanding version of that, in which we take on the suffering of the world and give out through our heart all that's good. Now let me see if I can explain how this could make sense to you. Maybe it does intuitively. Here's a story. The devotee knelt to be initiated into discipleship. You may have heard this. I read it sometime last fall. The guru whispered sacred mantra in his ear, warning him that if he dared to reveal it to anyone, something terrible would happen. He said, well, what would happen if I do? said the guru, anyone you give this mantra to, this sacred teaching and treasure, will be liberated from bondage and suffering, but you yourself will be excluded from the comradeship of disciples in this temple and suffer damnation in hell. No sooner had he heard the holy mantra than the devotee rushed to the marketplace with these teachings, collected as big a crowd around him as he could, and repeated the sacred words for all to hear. Some other disciples later ran back to the guru and demanded he be expelled from the monastery for his disobedience. 
But the guru smiled and said, He has no more need of anything I can teach. His actions have shown him to be a guru in his own right. There is a kind of nobility that comes to us as our practice develops, as our spiritual inner life develops, which is that willingness to die for something greater than ourselves or to give our life to something greater than ourselves. I read from Joanna Macy, The Great Turning. I imagine that future generations will look back on these closing years of the 20th century and call it the time of the great turning. It is the epochal epochal shift from an industrial growth society dependent on accelerating consumption to a sustainable, life-sustaining society. There's no guarantee we will make it in time for civilization or even complex life forms to survive. Yet it is clear that there's no alternative because we are on runaway, consuming our own life support system. I consider it an enormous privilege to be alive today in this turning when all the wisdom and courage we have ever harvested can be put to use and matter supremely to the whole earth. Lester Brown of the World Watch Institute points out that while the agricultural revolution took centuries, and the Industrial Revolution took decades, this ecological revolution must happen within a few years. At the same time of necessity, it will be more thoroughgoing, involving not only our political economy, but the attitudes and habits that sustain it. Scientists see more quickly than politicians that there's no technological fix, no magic bullet, Not even the internet can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, poison by pollution, and wholesale extinction of plants and animal species. We are going to have to want different things, to seek different pleasures, to pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our old global economy. Only by this will the world be saved. So there comes at some point in consciousness a a, a deep realization that things have to turn around and that the turning begins in ourselves. And that that turning itself may require a kind of sacrifice, even a terrible one at some points. When Marion Woodman was teaching here a few weeks ago, a wonderful Jungian analyst, she was telling about something really awful that could happen to someone in analysis, and it, it, it would be like they would die if this was done. And somebody said, well, what would happen then? They were really frightened. Would this person really die? She said, well, if they weren't attended to properly. What, what happens then if they die? She said, well, if they die, then later on they'd be reborn. And she meant it not just literally from one physical life to another, but in the inner life. Because there is a spiritual truth and a rule of the psyche that if we let go and die, that something bigger will become born in us. I learned it from Manindra, Joseph's teacher in India, who I also studied with, who was into the sharing of merit. At the end of anything good, he'd say, may all beings share in the good deeds or the merit or the, you know, the good karma of this for the benefit of all. And he would always say when someone was in trouble, I, I offer you all of my merit, all of the goodness of my whole life. 
and somebody said Menindraji. But when you give away everything good, what's left? You know, here you've worked all these years to serve and teach and so forth, and now you're giving it away, and what's left for you? And he said, oh, this is a very good system. You must understand, he said. Because when you give away all that goodness, then it multiplies and you get more of it in that moment than you gave away. Here is Milarepa, Tibet's um, great yogi and sage. Let's see if I can find where I put you, Milarepa. Milarepa returned to his cave and found there seven great demons with bodies, huge bodies, eyes the size of saucers, making fire and dancing, and he became frightened and realized that um, they might be the local deities of this place, and although I've been here for months and years, I've never praised them. So he sang a song to honor them. And as he honored them, you non-human beings, drink this cup of compassion and be gone. And half of them disappeared, three of them. But three were still left doing more imposing dances, and he couldn't make them go away. So he sang a new song to them. Um, He bowed down and he said, It's wonderful that you demons have come today. You must come tomorrow. From time to time we should converse. Please feel that this is your home too. And he offered them everything he had. And they disappeared like a rainbow. But the last and most vicious one made an imposing dance and Milarepa thought, This one is really powerful. And he looked at this demon and thought of his years of practice and said, A demon like you does not intimidate me. For if a demon like you could frighten me, the arising of the heart of compassion would have little meaning. Demon, if you were to stay longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them all along. We'll talk out our differences. Oh, I feel compassion for you. And when he had said this with friendliness and compassion, without concern for his body, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon. But the demon could not eat him and so vanished like a rainbow. <coughs> what Tonglen practice is, is works on this fundamental truth that the more that we give, the freer that we are. So that, that one of the lamas that taught Tonglen here in years past at Spirit Rock, in the middle of this day of compassion, people were weeping, and he was describing the, the children who were hungry and the people dying and you breathing all this in, And he paused for a moment. He said, you may not know whether you should do this, but I have a question for you. He said, if with your breath you could remove the sorrows of the world, if you could do it, who among you would not do so? If someone said, you have the power to end the wars of the world with your breath and body, wouldn't you do it? So this is the reason for the teaching of Tonglen, that it brings this tremendous freedom if we can learn it. And what's left from that is trust and wholeness and emptiness and fullness and a kind of playfulness of mind because we've let ourselves die. We've faced the worst of the pains and there we are just here again. It's like this Zen disciple who faithfully sent his master an account of his spiritual progress. In the first month he wrote, I feel an expansion of consciousness and experience my oneness with the universe. 
The master glanced at the note and threw it away. The following month, this is what he had to say. I finally discovered that the divine is present in all things. The master looked disappointed. His third letter came after much longer retreat. The disciple enthusiastically explained, the mystery of the one and the many has been revealed to my wandering gaze. The master yawned. His next letter came. No one is born, no one lives, and no one dies, for the self is not. The master threw up his hands in despair. After that, months passed by, then a whole year. The master thought it was time to remind his disciple of his duty to keep him informed of his spiritual progress. The disciple wrote back, I'm simply living my life, and as for spiritual progress, who cares? When the master read this letter, he said, Thank God, at last he's got it. (laughs) So perhaps the best way to understand these vehicles is this. A poet friend of mine, Tom Savage, wrote these lines. He said, Greater vehicle, lesser vehicle, all vehicles will be towed at owner's expense. And that concludes the discourse on the vehicles of <laughs> Buddhist practice. Now, so let us do a little bit of chant. And the chant tonight, which I'll begin, um, and you can join me, is a chant that means may all beings be um, uh, held in loving kindness, or may all beings be truly happy. And may all beings realize the, the happiness of the heart. Um, and it's a loving kindness the words are from the sutra or the text on loving kindness, and it goes, Sabe sata sukito. And as we chant it, then each time you can think of someone that you, or some place, or some country, or, or whatever you wish to imagine and connect your heart's intention that they may be well to. And we'll chant that for a little bit, and then we'll go out into the spring evening. Sabe sata sukito to Jennifer Grant. Sabe sata sukito and all in this room. Sabe sata sukito and your loved ones. Sabe sata sukito and all beings. Sabe sata sukito, and the ones you think of now. Sabe sata sukito. 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 Three more times. Sabe sata sukito. Sabe sata sukito. All beings. Sabe sata sukito. So may your week ahead be filled with blessings and may you awaken the
smaller, the greater, the diamond, and any other vehicle you would like. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.